The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, you can go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We'll get there in just a little bit. Uh, we are moving further into our summer series where we've been studying the Apostles' Creed. Um, if you're just hopping in with us or don't know what the Apostles' Creed is, it's essentially a 2,000-some-odd-year-old summary statement of the Christian beliefs and doctrines. So Christians across time and geography, cultures, languages, even denominations have looked to the Creed to help form their doctrine and fuel their discipleship. And that's what we're going for uh, this summer as well. So if you would stand, we're going to read the creed together as we've done every week and as we will continue to do. If you're not a Christian, just embrace the awkward. You don't have to say anything. We're just glad you're here. But if you're a believer in Christ, let's read together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we are thankful that we get to gather as your people. We thank you for the truths that are contained in this creed, all of the things that you have accomplished for us, who you are. We pray that you would be with us this morning and help your word form us to be more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've preached each week or as you've read the creed, but it's sort of summarized in three sections. The first section is about God the Father. The second section is about God the Son, Jesus Christ. And the third is about God the, the Holy Spirit and the church. And last week, Dan kicked us off into this second section as we confess together that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Now, historically, when Christians talk about Jesus, and I mean theologically, they do so in two parts, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. So the person of Jesus is answering the question, who is God the Son? What are his attributes, his identity, his characteristics? That's what we talked about last week. The work of Jesus is answering the question, what has God the Son done for us on our behalf? And that's what the creed is going to turn its attention to next and really break it down into five key movements. And I'll just throw them up there for you. We're not going to cover all of them today. But the first is the incarnation. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Second is Jesus' substitution. He stands in for us as sinners. He stands in our place. He dies our death. Third is resurrection. That Jesus doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave. Fourth is the ascension. He goes to where he is to this day, ruling and reigning and interceding for us as believers. And the fifth is what's to come, his return, that he will come back to judge and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we're headed over the next five weeks. But for this morning, we're going to talk about that first one, the incarnation. 
Jesus incarnated. He puts on flesh and enters into humanity. Maybe you could jokingly call this week Christmas in July. Some of you are excited. The worship team didn't want to do Christmas music because they hate Christmas. Just kidding. They don't. We didn't even talk about it. That's where we're headed. We're going to talk about the birth of Jesus or how the creed would say it, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I know a lot of y'all have been excited for this week. Jesus, God the Son, he takes on flesh, the limitless, disembodied God, the one who cannot be contained in time or space, becomes a man. He takes on a body, he takes on limitations, but he doesn't do so through normal human reproductive means. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. So my, my goal for today is I want to show you why this line, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, is crucial to our faith. It's not just a throwaway line in the creed. It's not just something you can take or leave. It matters. In other words, I want to turn the virgin birth from something that we just think about once a year around Christmas time into something that is a declaration of faith and an invitation to worship. But before we do that, I want to take a look at what actually happened some 2,000 years ago as God enters into humanity. So let's take a look at Luke 1, how he tells the story. If you've got a Bible, go there, or you can follow along behind me on the screen. Luke 1, 26. Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So right off the bat, Luke points out two things. The first is their relationship status. It says that Joseph and Mary are betrothed. So they are legally married, but they haven't consummated their marriage yet. And second thing is he points out that Mary is a virgin. And he's very clearly doubling down. Whenever you're reading your Bible and something is repeated within just a couple of verses or sentences, it's meant to highlight this. And Luke is intentionally repeating, she is a virgin. And that matters for what's about to come next. Verse 28. And he came to her, the angel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This is just your reminder that angels showing up in the Bible is not normal for the people that are experiencing it. She's freaked out. It's not a normal day for an angel to be in her living room. Why is Gabriel here? Keep going, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a loaded prophecy that's coming from Gabriel. He says that Jesus, this baby to be born, will sit on the throne of his father, the King David, and his kingdom will have no end. If you were a first century Jewish man or woman hearing Luke 1 for the first time, these words would have exploded in your mind because you would have immediately thought, he's talking about the Messiah because the Messiah is prophesied to come through the line of David that his kingdom would be forever. You would have perked up and said, this is who we've been waiting for. The time has come. But you also would have had the same question that Mary is about to ask. Verse 34. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? We've talked about this before, this idea of chronological snobbery, kind of the idea that we, you know, 2,000 years later, moderners, we would never think the way the people in the Bible would think. They're so gullible and naive. They didn't know the way the world works. And so I love Mary's response here because she responds how we would, which is, I've taken a biology class. I know how this is supposed to work, and this can't happen. Look at what the angel says to her, though. Verse 35. An angel said to her, answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is super important. The fact that the Virgin Mary conceives not through human means, but by the power of God means that this child to be born is divine. Jesus doesn't become divine later. It's very clear that up front, this child is God entering into humanity through supernatural means. This is vital to our doctrine because Jesus is not like a hybrid. He's not half man and half God. He's fully God and fully man. The theological term is the hypostatic union, if you want to tuck that one away. The hypostatic union. It means that Jesus has two complete natures, a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. So was Jesus fully God? Yes. Was Jesus fully man? Yes. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. Let's finish up the passage. Verse 36. And behold, the angel keeps speaking, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived the son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, as we all know, everything that the angel predicts happens. Mary becomes pregnant. She goes to Bethlehem, gives birth to a son. They name him Jesus. God the Son has entered into humanity conceived by Holy, the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. So now the question becomes, why does this actually matter? Like, as we read the creed, if you were honest for a second, when we read the creed, it's like, I see why forgiveness makes it in, the crucifixion, the Holy Spirit, God the Father Almighty, but why this one? Like, why is this top ten? Why is this in here? Why is it that I have to believe that a virgin got pregnant supernaturally in order to be like theologically solid. Why does it matter? And there's a ton of reasons, but I want to spend our time giving you five of them. Give you five. Not a little. Five. So first one, the virgin birth means that God can perform miracles. The virgin birth means that God can and does perform miracles miracles. The virgin birth is ultimately a miracle. It's an impossibility. It cannot happen. It does not happen. Virgins do not get pregnant, and Mary knows this, and ancient readers of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew and his telling would have known this too. I mean, just imagine this, and I'm sure you've heard a joke like this before. It's played out, but I'm going to do it anyway. Just how it goes. Somebody's talking to Mary. Oh my gosh, you're pregnant. That's great. How far along? Eight months. Oh my gosh, boy or girl, boy. Oh, I bet he's going to look just like Joseph. Well, 
Joseph's not the father. Oh my gosh, Mary, does he know? Yeah. Well, who's the father? God. God's the father. The Holy Spirit, actually. This is weird. It would have been weird then. It's weird now. It just doesn't happen. It cannot happen except by the power of God. Um, years ago, there's a famous story about the author C.S. Lewis during his years as a professor at Cambridge. Um, C.S. Lewis, as many of you know, is uh, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many other great works. We love him. Um, but the story goes, it was around Christmas time, and, and C.S. Lewis is, is listening to Christmas carols in his office. Uh, there's a parade outside. He's got his window open. And a colleague comes in, and he's shaking his head, and he says to Lewis, Aren't, aren't you glad that we know better than they? And C.S. Lewis says, pardon me, I'm not sure what you're speaking of. He said, well, aren't you glad we know that virgins don't have babies? And as the story goes, Lewis pauses and replies, well, don't you think they knew that too? That's the whole point, right? That is the point. That's why we sing about it. It's not that people were running around having virgin births all the time. It's that this is miraculous. So a huge lesson that we can learn from the virgin birth is that God can and does break into the natural order by supernatural means and perform supernatural acts of wonder. Our world and our culture, and we talk about this all the time, it trains us to think that there's nothing outside of what you can sense, what you can experience with your senses. And over time, what that does to us is it disciples us. And it trains us to think that God is not going to do anything out of the ordinary. So we'll pray for things like healing. But we really just are trusting that the medicine's going to work how it should. Which is a good thing to pray for. But we don't actually expect that God is going to supernaturally heal someone. We, we pray for things like holiness and freedom from addiction. But really our trust is in the therapy process. Which again is a fine thing. But really, our trust is in more self-awareness over our past and healing from our wounds, which are great things. But we don't expect that God, through a sermon or a worship song, will break chains and change lives. We, we pray for God to save our friends and to reconcile them to himself. But really, our trust is in our abilities and our ability to know the right things, to share the gospel in a very winsome, and fun way. It's cool, most likely at a brewery. But we don't expect for God to do something crazy and bring people to himself. And so one of the ways the virgin birth is helpful is by showing us that central to the whole story of Jesus and really to the whole redemptive narrative of the gospel and the Bible is a miracle. God taking on flesh. And listen, if, uh, if the virgin birth is too much of a hurdle for you, if you're like, ah, that's crazy, I couldn't believe that, what do you do when a dead man rises? What do you do when your Savior gets out of the grave? What do you do with the fact that you are promised to rise again if you believe in Him? You cannot, you cannot take or leave it. If you reject the virgin birth, you have to reject the resurrection too. Because both are impossible. So yeah, a virgin birth is impossible. But we worship a God who does the impossible. Why do you think that the angel had to remind Mary in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Because Mary's like, there's no way. Just like us, there's no way. I know how this is supposed to work. An angel says, remember who you worship. 
So there's something for our souls to be encouraged by here as we remember that God does the miraculous because central to our faith is a miracle. So we approach God with faith and we ask Him to show up in our lives, even with what seems impossible, because God does and can perform miracles. Second one is that God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but much of the Old Testament is a waiting game for God's people. They endure slavery and suffering and exile, persecution, all sorts of things, all as they're waiting for this promised one, this one who will come from the line of David to usher in God's kingdom forever, the Messiah. And something that's so fascinating, and Ben Myers in this book that we gave out a couple weeks ago, if you've been following along, he talks about this, is in the storyline of the Bible, the storyline is one in which miraculous births play a, a key role. So if you trace it back all the way to Abraham and Sarah, God promises to Abraham and Sarah that even in their old age, that God will make their descendants outnumber the stars. It's a foreshadowing that one day all who trust in Christ will be counted among the descendants of Abraham. And how will this happen? The fulfillment comes and is promised to come, even though Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, through the miraculous birth of Isaac, his son comes through Moses, a miraculous protection of a newborn infant. Although Pharaoh decreed that all newborn and infant and toddler Hebrew baby boys would be cast into the Nile and killed, Moses is hidden and protected by God so that one day he will be raised up to lead God's people out of slavery. Or Judges 13 the Israelites are enslaved again. They're in captivity. They're desperate for deliverance. And God shows up to a barren woman and promises a son. And that son is Samson, maybe the greatest of the Israelite judges who rises up against the Philistines and delivers God's people. They keep going. Hannah, in 1 Samuel 1, prays for years and years for a child, and God hears her prayer and gives her Samuel the prophet who will anoint the first kings of Israel, including King David. Or if you take what we just read, Elizabeth in Luke 1, Mary's cousin, who though she herself is in old age and barren, God promises to send her and her husband a son, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for Jesus, the Savior of the world. Ben Meyer summarizes it like this. He says, at the great turning points of history, we find a woman pregnant, and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. Israel's story and our story as the people of God is a story of miraculous births. And so you see this, maybe the most improbable promise of all in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7, where God once again shows up to his people in exile, they're under oppression, and he promises them this. I'll just read it to you. Isaiah seven fourteen. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin birth is evidence that God keeps his promises. Though not on his people's timeline, maybe not quickly, they have to wait for generations, hundreds of years, looking for and longing for their Messiah. 
but God doesn't fail. He shows up. And so for us, we look back at how God has been faithful to His promises then as we wait and hope for His promises to be true now and in the future. Because if God promised that His Messiah would be born to a virgin and then it happens, and then He promises that that same Messiah will come back for us, then we know it will happen. That same Messiah is coming again to judge and to bring in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. It will happen. You can take it to the bank. The virgin birth means that God keeps His promises. That's our second one. Our third one and the next two are sort of tied together. More theological. That Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully man. So we said this in the first week that creeds were often written to establish both what the church did believe, but also what they didn't believe. And part of what this line helps establish, it pushes back against this false teaching, this heresy known as docetism. And docetism comes from the Greek word dokeia, which means to appear or to seem. And the argument of this heresy is that Jesus didn't actually become a man. He just appeared to. Because, and their, their whole point was that uh, the, the spiritual world is good, but the flesh and the physical world is evil. It's corrupt. So God, the divine, couldn't actually corrupt himself like this. Couldn't actually do it. So Jesus didn't actually become a human. He just appeared to. It's like a divine magic trick. And so the emphasis of the creed is to push in this by saying, no, he actually became a man. He was actually born. He really took on humanity. He grew up. He matured from a baby to a toddler to a child to a teenager. He went through puberty. He became an adult. He ate. He slept. He went to the bathroom. He got a job, and he felt pain, which kind of just seems like weird facts about Jesus, but it's incredibly good news for us because the great God that we've been in all over the past two weeks the one that's the King of Kings, who's limitless, all-powerful, eternal, Son of God, the Lord of Lords, it, all, it also means that He knows what it means to be us, to live like a human. It means that He can have empathy with us, which I think we all crave, right? We all want this I've-been-there sort of connection. Like there's, there's something special and unique about those who have walked the same journey as us. Um, friends who haven't, they can still love us and encourage us and help us, probably more than we'll give them credit for too. But there's something unique about being able to hear me too. Same. I've done that. I've been there. I've walked this journey. I've stood in your shoes. And Jesus' humanity means that he can do that. And more than we know. So when the Bible says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, it means it. When the, when the Bible says that Jesus is able to hurt with us in our pain, it really means it. When the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, it means it. Docetists, those that believe in docetism, they thought it was beneath the divine to come to earth. It was too lowly or normal. It wasn't godlike. But that is actually one of the best parts. It's one of the best parts about the gospel. That though Jesus is mighty, he empties himself to know us, 
That though He's limitless, He takes on limits. That though He's ruling and reigning, He comes down to be with us. Jesus is fully man. But there's a tension because the other is true. That's that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. So while the ancient church was dealing with docetism, we might deal with the opposite side, where we struggle to actually believe that he was God. We, we think that Jesus was just a human. So the creed recentered the early church one way. It might need to recenter us a different, because the virgin birth means that Jesus is fully human, but not just human. Jesus is also fully God. Jesus doesn't have a human father. He has a heavenly father. He's born of the Virgin Mary, an earthly mother, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. I want to show you something you've probably never thought about. Look back um, at verse 35, if you're reading. It says, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And this is the line I want to point out. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. If you were an ancient reader, when they heard this line, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You probably thought back to Genesis 1, verse 2, which we read a couple weeks ago, and I'll read it to you again. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Here's the line. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the same exact idea. The Spirit of God in creation is hovering over the waters, and now the Spirit of God is hovering over the womb of Mary. What, what Luke is showing us is that this isn't just simply a birth. It's the beginning of a new creation. It's the beginning of a new humanity. This is a redoing of Genesis 1. Sin has entered into the world and broken God's good design. So when Luke 1 says the Spirit is now hovering, this points to the reality that God is recreating in the person of Jesus a new world and a new kingdom. God is entering back into humanity to finish what He started. That's the good news. Which means that Jesus, though fully human, is still fully God. That six-pound, eight-ounce baby, He holds the world together. He's come to redeem the planet, to redeem us. He's the Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God, and worthy of our worship. Which brings us to our last point. And that's that Jesus is the perfect, sinless, and spotless sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice. The virgin birth is essential to Jesus being sinless. And being sinless is essential to Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for us. If Jesus is not sinless, He cannot be our sacrifice. He cannot be the spotless, perfect Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And if Jesus is not born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, He is not sinless. And here's why. And you can deep dive into this, but all of humanity is born as what the Bible calls sons of Adam or under Adam. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3, sin enters and it's been transmitted to all of us. So everyone who has now been born into the world has been of Adam. 
His sin now mars and corrupts our very nature. We are born not in neutral, not good, but sinful to our core, sinful to our very nature. If you doubt it, talk to a toddler. It is a fact. You cannot get around this. It is in the Bible. I'll show it to you in in Romans 5. Grab a Bible. I don't have it on a slide. I want to read it with you, though. Romans 5. Give you a second. This is chapter, this is uh, verse twelve. It says therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Skip to verse fifteen. And many died through one man's trespass. And 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. It just repeats this in the whole chapter. Everyone born of Adam is born sinful and sinning. But there was one who was not born of Adam. It's the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The one that was born through supernatural means, without an earthly father. The one who is untouched by sin. And because he's untouched by sin, he can be exactly what we need in our sin. A redeemer, a perfect sacrifice. The one who, though he has no sin, on the cross takes and becomes our sin. Because although there's a lot of bad news in Romans 5, there's also good news. Look back. This is still verse 15. It says, Many died through one man's trespass, but much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Or 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Jesus, the one not marred by sin, not born under Adam, but born from the Holy Spirit of a virgin, is the second Adam. It's a rewrite. The first Adam caused us all to be born under sin through one act, but the second Adam offers righteousness. Offers righteousness to us through one act. The virgin birth ultimately points to the cross. The virgin birth ultimately points us to the cross. It means that Jesus can die for us. It means that He can die for our sins, that He can save us, that He can wash us clean, that He can have the perfect righteous record and holiness. He can be the one who never sinned, whose nature was never corrupted by sin, so He could give us His perfect record. The virgin birth ultimately means that me and you can be saved because we need it, and we can't do it apart from Him. So the question then becomes, would you trust that? Would you trust in Him? Would you put your faith in Him? Will you believe that the one who performs miracles, the one who keeps His promises, the one who entered into humanity and was fully God is the same one who came to die for you? Would you trust in Him? Would you believe in Jesus? If you know Him already, will you rest in this? Will you rest in what He's accomplished for you? What He's promised to you? That He's faithful to you? I wonder if you see now that the virgin birth is not just some random thing we celebrate once a year. It's the culmination of God's promises across time. It's 
the culmination of God's promises of redemption across time. It holds within itself the gospel, the good news. It points us to the cross. It points us to God's character, its faithfulness. It reminds us that He's always working, always faithful and true, and that He can save us. He will. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank You that You had a plan from the beginning of time for Your glory and for us, that You would send Your Son through a miracle, through supernatural means, be born into this sinful, broken world, to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserve. Jesus, help us to believe this. Lord, for those of us who struggle to believe in the supernatural, we pray that your word would help us. Pray, Spirit, that you would help us. Because the story of redemption is one full of miracles. And there's more to come. And we pray that that would ultimately give us hope that you are bigger than us, that you are greater than us, that you can do the impossible, we cannot. God, help us to be encouraged by the virgin birth. That God, you promised your people what you would do and you delivered on that promise. So when we look to you for comfort, when we lay our sin before you, when we confess our doubts to you, when we look to the future resurrection, when we struggle to believe it, help us to look to this. And see, there's nothing impossible with our God. And you are faithful and true to deliver on it. So yeah, stir our affections and help us to love you more, God. So thank you for dying the death that we deserve, Jesus. Pray it all in your precious name. Amen.